Welcome to the Mastering Attention Podcast, where we talk to top mobile game experts about their experiences running successful games. This podcast is presented by UserWise, the live ops engine for your game. Creating and sustaining a great user experience is a surefire way to lengthen your game shelf life. There are many different ways to go about creating or improving a game's user experience. It can be as simple as choosing an art style, or it can be as complex as using data to identify weaknesses in your game. This week, Tom speaks with Abhay Ramakrishnan, product manager at DECA, about all the different ways to go about creating a great user experience that retains players and drives revenue. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the today's episode of the Master Your Intention podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, uh, co-founder of UserWise and your host today. Uh, today, I am delighted to talk to Abhay Ramakrishnan, who is currently at DECA. Um, and I don't know if you guys know anything about DECA games, but like they're folks that they like buy these like super old games that everyone else has kind of written off and then they like turn them into like cash cows and they run them forever and their community loves them and stuff. So like if we're talking about retention and live ops, like these guys know what they're doing. So I'm, I'm just delighted to have you on the show. But um, I, before we you know dive into all the things, I always like to start with, you know, how did you get into games and like what are you doing today? Like what's your story? Thanks. Thanks for having me first. Like, you know, I've listened to almost every episode on the feed. So like, it's, it's great to be on this podcast. Um, uh, well, you know, I've, I've worn many hats. Um, at one point, I used to work as an advertising copywriter. Then I shifted to games. Uh, till very recently, I was a senior game designer. And now I've shifted to the product management vertical. So, you know, I've worked on a lot of different types of games. I've uh, worked with a lot of really smart people, um, you know, and like I've really learned from all of them. I've worked, I'm currently at DECA. Before that, I used to work uh, in uh, Zynga and uh, some of the games which I've worked on are Dragon Whale, Zombie Catchers, Farmville 2. And uh, I generally like making games which people like to play with their friends for months, if not years. <laughs> I love it. I actually remember um, back when, well, back before COVID, when, you know, GDC was like normal GDC. Um, mm-hmm. I actually remember meeting with the, the black hook, backflip guys before uh, DECA acquired uh, Dragon Vale. So uh, fun times. Um, cool. So I guess, how would I phrase this? Okay. So I'm curious, you know, a lot of people kind of have this mindset in the gaming industry that, especially in mobile, that uh, a game has a certain lifespan. And once that lifespan is, you know, done, the game is kind of dead. And hopefully before that point, we started with another game and like it's launched and and doing well. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about like, what's the DECA difference? So um, I think what's also the DECA difference is that we are a company which focuses on this. You know, we really try to find um, games which are really driven by a by a community who really cares for those games. So that's one of the things which we really look for when we're trying to get a new game. So uh, once we do decide on that, we try to like, really fine tune what um, it means to run that game, go through all the documentation, go through all the data, figure out what worked in the past, reach out to the community. Um, so, uh, you know, like you, we figure all of that. And in addition to that, we are a remote first company. So we have to do all of that and make sure that everything is transmitted to the rest of the team across the world. So. Um, the other thing is that we primarily look at how to create things sustainably. Uh, so sustainable live ops events, if all of the design and all of the content, we try to figure out how do you make it for the long term? Uh, because, you know, Deca is about running games for decades. So that's really important. Um, and finally, I think we also focus a lot on one of the career points, uh, sorry, culture points, which 
is really important inside the studio is working smarter, not harder. Um, and that goes back to the previous point of sustainable live ops. You really have to figure out what is the team capable of, what do the players expect, and kind of manage a balance with that and figure out what's best for the games long term. So that's that's what the difference is. But the three main pillars, I would say, are delivering on time, uh, figuring out whether the quality is up to par, like error and bug free, and also more importantly, creating meaningful content, which the community really cares about. So you said sustainable live ops mm -hmm. um, events. What does that actually mean? Like, can you give me an example of maybe an unsustainable live ops event and maybe like a sustainable one? Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of times, um, some of the games, I mean, uh, some of the games which don't survive soft launch itself, um, the, the team behind it usually makes something which requires a lot of effort to create. That means either it could be content or it could be systems or it could be just incredibly detailed art assets. Um, it's really in, in a quest to differentiate themselves from the market. I think sometimes people don't factor in what is the ultimate cost of creating things inside a game? Um, so from a live ops perspective, I would say, you know, we what we try and do is we try to find what those highest impact items are inside the games that we run. So we look at where the, you know, rev is coming from, most of the revenues coming from, where we also look at what engages best with our community. Um, and we also try to look at um, what are the diminishing points, uh, the diminishing, the point of diminishing returns which are there. So we look at certain live ops features which we have put in. And then we when we realize that the amount of effort doesn't justify the outcome or be, be that with retention or with revenue, then we kind of accept because it's not worth it in the long term. You have limited amount of resources, limited amount of time, and you also need to be careful with your team's mental well-being. So you have to factor all of that in and try to figure out what's best for everybody. Um, so, you know, once, once we look at what is sustainable in that sort of way, we also try to figure out did we get it right or if we didn't get it right we kind of document it in a lot we have retrospectives we try to figure out how to best optimize our process for the next iteration and that's just it just keeps going on um, that iteration cycle is the one which i think um, we do quite well where we look at what worked in the past we try to figure out how to improve it and then we invest on those things so would you say that picking your art style, like when you're getting ready to soft launch a game or whatnot is crucial to being able to be sustainable in the sense that if my art is too detailed and too complex, mm -hmm. I'll never be able to hit this desired cadence that I have or whatnot, just because it's too costly and too time consuming to produce that. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look at Deca's portfolio of games, we also focus a lot on 2D games. You know, it, it's it's partially an effect of these games are older, uh, but the the other aspect of it is also that it's easier to produce those those assets. Um, while if if you look at another game, let's say a really high definition 3D game. Uh, it's much more expensive to produce it and you have to balloon up your team a lot or rely on outsourcing partners to create the art. And then your margins just reduce so much more also. Like you can, you need a certain amount of players and payers before it's sustainable for the long term. So I, I, I feel sometimes the 
market decides for the team what is what is a good art style because yeah. they tell you that hey i don't find this interesting or i it was great but i tried so much i have to get so many shards before i can get one of the these things that i really care about so yeah. um the the audience will eventually tell you and the data will most probably back it up mm interesting Okay. I want to switch gears just a little bit because you talked about the importance of like, when you look to acquire a game, you look for an active engaged community. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell me like, what are maybe some ways that you've used the community to come up with maybe like new feature ideas or, or whatnot? Cause I know like some game teams are like, yeah, I'd love to talk to my players, but I don't have time to do that. They don't really have a way to do that. So how how have you found that you can actually leverage the community in a way that you know makes for a better game? Well, that yeah, that's that's an excellent question. Um, and I've seen this problem which a lot of teams face. Um, so first, I think it's important that you know you have like a really rockstar community manager. Um, it's super critical to have somebody who specializes in that, like an expert in that field. So. Teka as a company really invests in that. Uh, we uh, empower, so they're, they're like, there are three sort of pillars which are there. There's like design, community, and data. Like these are the ways by which I, and also the larger team, these are the lenses which we use to figure out what to do next. Uh, so all three people, be it the designer or the community manager or the PM business analyst, uh, all of these three components have an equal stake in the future of the game. So uh, the the product team and the design team usually try to figure out what to do, but from very, very early on in the process, we try to rope in the community through the community manager. I think that's super important. You need to go through the community community manager because they will know how to frame the narrative well, because a lot of the times it's more important to figure out how to say something, even if it's bad news, if it's delivered well, um, it's, it's better for the game, the community and also the team. Um, so yeah, like I think that's that's how we go about doing it. And from um, from a live ops perspective, I already mentioned that we keep the community in the loop. But what we also do is we have a smaller cohort of players who we kind of uh, identify. We try and get them into a social space like either discord server or any any sort of platform where they can it's it's a much smaller group and they can directly speak to us um, a lot of other teams have also done the same the the community manager acts as a channel of information between the rest of the community and the team uh, we also have a sheet where we keep track of all the ideas which are coming in from the team and then we prioritize them and we figure out what to add it uh, add into the game, and uh, finally, we for a even smaller subset, we get them to sign an NDA, and we share stuff which the rest of the community will only get to see later on. And those guys are, are evangelists. You know, they they look at features, or they look at balancing. They look at everything inside the game. Um, before anybody anybody else in the community does, we trust them. We uh, tell them explicitly that you know we want their feedback. We know that it is important for us to have these pe- people who have played these games for six, seven, eight years. Like you know, we most companies don't have employees who has who have worked on those games for eight years, but these people know these games inside out. So. Mm we loop them in also very early and then they give us incredible feedback, which we can quickly iterate on. Um, so, yeah. That's really cool. So 
for these long run games, like um, how do you wait? Like let's say DECA buys a new game today um, and you come in and you talk to your community. I imagine the things that the community wants is going to be more of those like quality of life things or, or bug fixes or some of those. So how do you wait those kind of things to keep a happy community versus like new features? Like, does it tend to be for these long run games that you guys focus a little bit more on the quality of life type features, because that's what gets your community happy or, or what's the balance usually? Um, the first thing we, we are a live ops company. So the first thing which you figure out is what is the live ops cadence for the game? What do players expect from the game regularly? Um, and that's that's the first thing which we address even before looking at quality of life or uh, new features. Uh, from from a live ops point, if we know, if we execute like if we just got a new game and we execute on the event really well or two events, and then we get our, our data pipeline sorted out. We got all, all of the prerequisites required to figure out that, hey, now the um, live ops is running really well. Once we do that, then we try and see, once that is stable, because that's directly related to the two most important metrics, which is retention and monetization. If, if those two are stable, then we move on to not only listening to what the players have been saying, because players have a lot of opinions. So we try to filter those out again to the community manager. And uh, we, we put numbers to it. We try to prioritize and try to figure out what has what's best for the game at this point in its life, uh, uh, in its product life lifespan. So um, yeah, like that, for example, with, uh, with Dragon Whale, when we took over, that's what we effectively did for the first few months. Um, we calmed the community down. We told them that you know we are here. We are here to we care about the game as much as they do, um, and uh, we proved that they are capable of doing it by releasing one quality event after another. Um, mm -hmm. And once we got that done then we shifted on to what is what is the feature which would really either really move the retention metrics the monetization metrics or ideally both uh, and then wait accordingly and then we start working on those new features and if a quality of life uh, improvement also directionally helps those things, we will try to fund those also. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit, and we're going to lean in towards talking about data a little bit. But before we get there, um, I'm curious what your take is on segmentation. Um, so as an example of what I consider bad segmentation or no segmentation at all. I don't know which one. Um, I always found that when I was playing Clash Royale, um, I would usually have a prescribed deck that I'm leveling up. Um, from my perspective, it should be fairly easy from the data to see that obviously I'm working on leveling up the expo or the knight or, or, or whatever because that's the card that I'm requesting over and over again for my clan. And that's the one that I'm putting gold into when I hit it, like, and, 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 you know, once you get up to higher levels, like you do that for like months straight. Um, and I, I always found it weird that whenever I'd go to the store, um, you know, I'd have these special offers for like some card that like I'd never used, never requested, didn't have in any of my decks. And it just seemed like outlandish. Whereas like, Hey, if they gave me a little offer or as part of like a special event, maybe the reward was like the last 10 cards that I needed to be able to like finish that up. Like I would be so focused on buying that thing or engaging in that thing or whatnot. Um, so I think segmentation can make a better player experience if it's done right. Um, but I don't think that many folks actually can get it right. Um, so I'm curious, like 
what your what, what's your take on segmentation? I think the last point which you made is mostly accurate. I think most people don't have the tools required to get the segmentation done right. Uh, obviously, for me, the the ideal scenario is where I just um, put a couple of parameters into a tool and then uh, create offers just for those segments and then it just works you know like that's that's the ideal case scenario um but often um it's harder and because it's harder and it requires time and effort and really thinking of it from a high level strategic point of view and then zooming in completely and looking at oh this sort of player plays these many times and there's like this represents 2% of the audience. Um, doing that requires a lot of time. And it since um, it requires a lot of time and effort, a lot of people, I think, don't put in that effort. They try to either make something for the entire audience or they try to make it for a very specific um, segment, which is easier to figure out like new player, uh, new players, like um, a new player offer or... Uh, they tie it to, um, you know, like a limited time event, for example. So um, e even from my side, we do fewer segmentation-based things than I would like. But um, I think it's because I haven't found the best tool till now. <laughs> yeah. Um, what sort of, you know, for people that are maybe a little bit newer to segmentation, like what sort of, ways have you found that breaking players up into different segments is, has worked well for you? Um, for us specifically, it's a bit more different because we deal with really, um, really engaged players. So, you know, like D180 is long gone. Like we're talking about five, <laughs> six years, you know, like we're talking yep. about players who really care. They know exactly, you know, they, some of them even have like a sort of entertainment budget you know they they know that this is this thing this is almost like a lifestyle for them uh so um with with these players we know who out, out of them what the pairs are also like what they prefer and since they from a retention point they've been in the game for a really long time we try and focus on various um, engagement and, um, you know, the, the amount of revenue per user, for example, per month. That's Those are the two metrics we primarily focus on. And then we try to figure out, oh, these, these sort of players, they, they, from the data and from talking to them and from our own design intuition, we figure out that this is the sort of content which they find valuable. So we, we created for pair segments rather than um, for the life cycle of the player because uh, we, we do focus on new players also, but a lot of our effort is put into the existing players and trying to figure out where they belong and giving them something which is valuable to them and that value takes a lot lot of time for the team yeah. to judge yeah so okay so so let me see if i can wrap my head around this and kind of understand um so you said something about paying players but not just paying players and not just total revenue that they paid you look at actually the revenue that they spend per month on average so mm -hmm. um if you look at my player um maybe you'd make a segment and you say hey Tom spends $5 a month on average. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe you'd start that with the segment, but then you'd further dig into the data to see, okay, well, what types of things does he spend that $5 on? Um, this is what he makes it, or this is what he tends to spend on. So we're going to make a segment of players like Tom that spend $5 a month on this thing. Then you probably examine all the other players that also spend $5 a month make a segment for, or an offer or what for each of those. Then you look at the players that spend 
$10 or $20 a month and kind of do something similar? Is, is that kind of a rough breakdown? Um, we try and surface things which is relevant to each of these audiences. That's really interesting. I haven't really heard of that, but I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Like <laughs> you probably have a certain budget per month that you can spend. And if you can give me something valuable per month of gameplay, like I know this is the game that I want to be playing and I've got 10 bucks a month to spend on it. And you give me something awesome to spend that 10 bucks on. Well, I'll probably do that every month for you. Yeah. I, I think it's also important to know that um, these are, these are games which people are choosing to spend their time on. So we try and figure out how much time they're spending. We figure out how much money they're also choosing to spend and we try and see what can we do from our side to let to retain them for as long as possible and that means just looking at different sort of players and trying to figure out you know be it from a limited time event currency how to price it or try to figure out how do you you know depreciate the value of certain items inside your game if something's released five years ago, it shouldn't be costing the same thing it cost five years ago. You know, it, it, it's important that you have some parallels with the real world. Um, and yeah, like just, I think it's really important to respect your audience. And when you do that, and the players will figure it out. And that's one of the things which we have seen time and again, where when we, when we are clear with players of what, why we are doing things, they usually really appreciate it. And then they always, almost always give constructive feedback and criticism if we do go the other way. Mm. Interesting. Okay. I want to now delve a little bit deeper into the data on those types of things, because mm -hmm. I imagine that as good as you guys think you are at figuring out what sort of offer, you know, players like Tom that spend $5 a month buying these kind of things, you probably want to do some sort of like AB testing or data to, you know, understand that kind of thing. So um, tell me a little bit more about like the data side, what sort of tests do you guys do? What sort of things do you delve into? How do you utilize the data that you have to make better game experiences? Yeah. Um, right, right now we are, actually just properly kicking off some of the um, A-B testing related experimentation, experiment wrapping, which we're doing. Uh, but from a, a data point of view, we usually try and have a hypothesis, some sort of uh, thing which we want to try and figure out an answer to. And since we have so many data points coming in every single second, we um, try to pack it with real player data. So just keep looking at your dashboards and trying to slicing it till you figure out uh, whether it's packing your initial hypothesis. So um, the, 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 the figuring out what the question which you're trying to answer is, goes back to the working smarter, not harder thing which I spoke about, which is where we really try to hone in on what to solve for rather than just going through the data and hoping that we get an insight from that. Um, and with A-B testing, that translates into creating meaningful variants. Um, and meaningful variants need to make sense from a design point of view and from a community point of view, uh, primarily because our communities are small, so they will talk to each other. And if it doesn't feel right from a design point of view, it the community will definitely tell you very quickly that, you know, why are you doing A, B, and C? Um, they, they will come back to you and say, hey, maybe, you know, this, my friend, and here's a screenshot, got this. So like, you know, what's, what's the problem? Which is why we try to only make meaningful experiments 
and also we try to also speak to the community early and ask them we are thinking of doing something like this what do you think of it and if they say this is what we like we go back to the real data which is there see whether there's any sort of comparison which we can make with existing data and then take a decision rather than experimenting with the community and uh, hoping for the best here's an interesting idea mm-hmm. i only think about this because uh, i'm 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 using the user wise framework but um, mm-hmm. Have you ever done something where you like let the player choose their own experience where it's like, hey, which special offer would you like to get next week? And you have, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. like four screenshot options of, you know, different bundles for the same price or whatnot. And then depending on what they choose, that's actually the offer that they then, you know, drive themselves, probably making it more likely that they would actually buy it in theory. Um, I... I'm not sure about that because usually the way I like to approach anything related to monetization design is giving players as few choices as possible so that there isn't decision paralysis. So (laughs) when, like I've seen stuff like this in AFK Arena, for example, where you can build your own bundle, right? Um, Often the the issue which I have with those sort of bundles is that I don't know what is good. What might be good right now might not be valuable for me four days from now. So I always try to make sure that I go for something where it's really clearly stated this is the value. You know, it's 60% off or whatever it is. Um, Rather than uh, giving players the the option to decide how it is because it's not interesting gameplay. I feel um, if if I'm able to build my own bundle, um, I, I'm spending that time doing that instead of I don't know defeating something or breeding a cool dragon or something like that. So it's, it goes back to the amount of time which players have. Um, for me, it's specific things which players need to choose from most probably it's not too many of them and keeping on iterating on what what those things are yeah okay so i have seen this maybe like in in one game or at least i saw a screenshot of it um but i'm going to talk about a couple experiences that i've had not in a game and i'm curious your take on if they could translate into the game So I don't know, this might've been like a year ago or something, but um, there's a a pizza place in town that we sometimes get from, I think it's like Papa Murphy's. It's like this take and bake. It's kind of like a chain, but pizza bakes pretty good. And like our our kids eat it well. Um, So they had a, they have a deal on Tuesdays. It's $10 Tuesday. So like any pizza, 10 bucks. Um, So we decided to get pizza. Um, and as I was going to the checkout page, um, well, mind you, at this point in time, I'm starving hungry, really want pizza. Uh, I go to the checkout page and they're like, you know, do you want any of these additional things? Um, well, you know, the pizza is 10 bucks, but I can also add like cheesy breadsticks for only five bucks more. And I can add like some cookies for like only another five bucks. So I think I might've added those things. And I ended up like doubling the cost of what I was spending, um, but it was like an upsell. Um, mm-hmm. on the, the flip side, um, Amazon. So our house was built, um, it's, it's like really airtight. So we always have to have a dehumidifier, like pulling the stuff out. Otherwise it kind of can get moldy inside or at least thus our builder tool does. So bought one, eventually it died. Don't know why it just kind of stopped working. So I had to go buy another one on Amazon. So as I'm shopping on Amazon, I go to buy a dehumidifier And, you know, I got in my car to go to the checkout page and they said, you know, customers that bought this also frequently bought this other thing. What was this other thing they recommended? Well, it was like this like dinky little 10 foot garden hose, which like nobody ever needs a 10 foot garden hose, right? Like that's the stupidest thing to buy. Cause like you're trying to water your yard or something like you need at least like a 50 foot hose, right? Mm -hmm. 
Not true if you're buying a dehumidifier because dehumidifier every like week, I'd have to like go downstairs, empty it out, bring it upstairs, pour out the water, put it back down. But if I get this hose, I can hook it up to the back and set it so it goes into the drain in my basement and it just like automatic and I don't even have to think about it again. It's like the perfect thing that I need to accompany this other thing that I'm buying. And it's, you know, hey, do you want to do that upsell and, and spend a little bit more and get this additional value? Um, I, I'm curious, like, could that type of a thing translate into a game to kind of do that upsell to players? Or is it just adding too much friction? I'm overthinking and I'm just dreaming. Um, but like in both cases, I spent more money than I would have otherwise. And I had a better experience. Those cookies were good. <laughs> All right. I think I think both those scenarios are really interesting. With the first one, just trying to um, make you take a sort of impulsive decision when you were till that point in a relatively rational decision. Uh, and with the second one, I think that's also super interesting because basically there's like a lot of data which Amazon anyway has. So that's where the, I think the difference comes in. Um, Amazon knows and it has enough people who can figure it out where, uh, you know, what are these sort of connections between these separate data points where one is a dehumidifier and one is a hose. Um, I think one of the things which play, people don't initially find surprising is why is this being recommended but the only once you figured out that connection is when you're like oh my god this is genius right um with a game economy depends on your content depth also the system is kind of like you're effectively creating a closed economic system right where um there are certain items inside the game each of those items have some sort of value but those values if like ideally should translate to some sort of dollar dollar value in your backend. Um, so if, if a hard currency is, you know, you get 100 hard currency for $1, each hard currency is one set, for example. So um, if, if there's an upsell system which is created inside the game, first, you need to be sure that you have the right people to be able to implement it and keep iterating and not on it till the player understands that you're doing it for the, their own good, it, it needs to have some sort of benefit to them. And I think that is where the hardest things are because creating that system and recommendation algorithms in general are incredibly hard. Um, so if you have a limited menu, for example, what the pizza place had, then you can upsell a dessert because at that point I want to just complete my meal in some sort of way. But if your game has, it, it's unlikely, but if your game has 100,000 pieces of content, then figuring out which content is interesting with which other content is going to require a lot of effort from just trying to figure out what the connections between these two things are and it'll require a lot of iteration with the community. And I think that is where a lot of game studios don't get too deep into it because it takes so much effort just to make a fun game that if you have a dedicated set of people just working on the uh, upsell or the recommendation offer, then uh, you're taking resources away from making the game. And that's that's why initially I was saying that I don't I don't see the advantage, but that's because I've always worked in teams where we're trying to focus on how to make the best live ops experience as possible. Mm -hmm. And when you focus on that, you're effectively taking away resources away from making the live ops feature or making a new new uh, feature or making a quality of life improvement. So unless yeah. there's a plug and go system, it's, it's uh, hard. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, so thinking about live ops a bit, um, 
you know, can you tell me what sort of like tools and systems you really need to be able to deliver? Like you, you talked about this uh, work smarter, not harder <laughs> type of experience. So like what sort of tools and systems do you need to be able to deliver this kind of consistent, you know, ever improving gameplay experience? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the first thing is just like really robust documentation of what the content is inside the game. Ideally, you should be able to also figure out very quickly what the value of each of these pieces of content are. I think that's the bedrock. Um, then on top of that, um, access to um, you know tools like Firebase or to Tableau and just trying to figure out what's going on inside the game at any given point of time quickly. That's the next thing. And the third thing, which is more soft, is trying, deciding at what point to reach out to your core set of community players and asking them for help. Um, I think those are the three things. Very cool. Um, I know you said like having a community manager is like, you know, super important and stuff. How did you guys like, how do you pick those uh, players that you sign NDAs with that are, you know, going to be able to like, I imagine like some players, especially if I'm showing them like balancing and stuff, like I I can't imagine like, (laughs) um, you know, like like my little brother works on uh, Warzone um, Mm -hmm. doing data science. And a lot of what he does is uh, balancing the different guns and stuff like that, which I think can be incredibly hard because certain guns if you put them in the hands of a certain player, they're just like insanely accurate because they just like blow people away. But everyone else that gets that, like thinks that gun is like super underpowered because they never kill someone because they like lack that aiming skill depth or whatnot. Um, So going through that level of balancing and stuff, I think could be really intense for certain players. Like how do you pick which players would be able to do that type of thing? Yeah. That's a fantastic question. And um, how we go about doing it is that um, we, since since we have players who have played our games for six, eight, ten years at points, um, they kind of know the game inside out. And they also bubble up in existing social networks. Um, so it's most you most probably know a player from your game who is very vocal about what they like or what they don't like. Um, once you bet, let's say a couple of, a dozen or so of them, then the community manager who's also vetting the, the players, they he, he or she reaches out to them and tries to figure out how interested they'll be in actually being involved in this process. Because some people just don't care. They, they like hanging out with other people. They like sharing their thoughts, but they don't like the process of building. And that's fine. We, we you know, appreciate them playing our game. That itself is like the best thing. Um, so once, once the community manager figures out who are the people who have the most insightful things to say about the game, then we kind of start talking to them one-on-one. We try to figure out, they are trying to figure out what we want from them. We are trying to figure out what they can also provide. So it's it's like building a relationship with them and we, we give them the trust and in turn, they also trust in us and they believe that we are here to run the game for the long term. Um, so yeah, I think that's how we go about doing it. First trying to figure out who are these players, then trying to reach out to them and trying to figure out whether they'll be interested in something like this. And then just like all relationships, just taking it one step at a time. And uh, if, if there's a point where somebody wants to leave, that's fine. We usually try to look at the community and try to figure out how to replace them in that group with somebody else so that 
there's always a balance of voices rather than 10 people in a room and one person is the only one who's saying the most. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the last like five minutes here, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of design pillar that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I think you said is play your game every day, um, mm-hmm. which I think everyone should do. It's very easy not to sometimes. And mm-hmm. I've seen some bad things happen if you don't do that. Um, but the other one is figure out what your competition is doing. Um, I've seen some people that focus too much on competitor games and whatnot. So I'm curious, like, what's the right balance of how often should you be playing competitor games? How should you be analyzing the new features and things that come out? Because I think it's very easy to like, feel like, Oh, they released this thing. I need to like get a feature out just like that, like immediately, or the sky's going to fall. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that's, that's something which we need to deal with also because um, we need to figure out what's working well with our game and we need to figure out what things to put inside the game so that our players play the game for how much of a long they find it enjoyable. Um, so with, with almost all things, I think it comes down to trying to figure out why something works. Um, So let's just take an example of like a battle pass system. I think almost every game nowadays has a battle pass system, but um, you know, we we had a discussion about this with uh, Dragon Veil, for example, and the Dragon Veil engagement and monetization system relies on limited time events, which have limited time currencies. And a battle pass is a set of milestones which you get progression on by earning currency. So uh, some sort of progression currency. So we looked at what what a battle pass does and the the two-tier approach and just, just looking at it from all angles trying to distill out why it works um, rather than just just copying it, seeing what existing systems are there in the game and are they not working? Has the community said X is not working well or Y is not working well? Figure out whether you're like actually fixing a problem which needs to be fixed for. So when you play computer data games, I usually try and figure out why, what is the inherent underlying problem which is being solved. And if, if I really understand that well, and that takes like weeks or months of playing that game, you know, uh, I don't think most people will be able to understand Dragon Ball as a game without playing it for two months, at least. Um, so once you get that, that is when you balance it out with your own design intuition. You look at existing player data and you look at the sentiment of your community and then try to figure out, is this the best thing which is there for our player base right now? Um, and that's that's where I try to factor in. It's, it's just one of them. It's one of the things which I look at, which is what is the competition doing? And maybe it works for them because their audience is different from us um, or they're at a different point of the game's life cycle. So uh, what might work well for others won't work well for us because it's not fitting and it's not a jigsaw puzzle piece which fits. I can ram it into place, but eventually it will have diminishing returns and then you would have sunk six to eight months of effort. And before you know it, it's going into the red. Yeah. That's really great feedback. So to kind of summarize, it's important to play competitor games when they add new features. And it's important to understand from a design standpoint, what were they trying to solve with that feature? Cause you don't actually know if it actually did the thing that it's supposed to, right? Uh, because more often than not, we release new features and it doesn't move the metrics we were hoping. Um, so you, you got to try to understand what were they trying to do? 
But then you have to come back to your game and say, what are our top two or three problems that our game has right now that we most need to fix? And what things can we do to actually address those problems? Maybe it's this competitor feature thing, or maybe it's something else. Is that like a yeah. good summary? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's likely that there are existing systems inside the game which needs to be improved. So, you know, like the maybe the competitors have already sorted out some system which your game is just having a, a MVP version of. So it, it really comes down to balancing the amount of resources which you have with the capabilities of what you want to put inside, with the ambition of what you want to put inside the game. So it, you keep needing to balance it out and, you know, like doing the basics right constantly is itself hard. You know, so if once, once you're making sure that your games is working fine consistently, that itself is like a tremendous achievement. And I think a lot of game teams just struggle with that. That's great. Well, dude, I feel like we could keep going for like another hour, but we're actually about out of time here. So I have one last question for you because we are in the Mastering Retention podcast, of course. And that's, you know, what's one tip or trick you've found over the years to help increase player retention? Like, how do you keep them playing for longer? Um, usually, um, I try to break it down into three categories. If it's a new player, um, I try to figure out... Um, what is the tutorial funnel? Try to get players to the interesting stuff as quickly as possible. The bit, bit term B thirty retention. Um, one of the things which we try to focus on is are players getting the stuff that we want them to get for that player journey. Uh, if if they if we keep looking at data to figure out are they on that track and if they're not on that track how do we realign things so that they go to that idealized track uh, and for long term which is what we need to deal with a lot is are we creating interesting content and systems which will surprise and delight our most loyal players um, from you kind of need to balance out again what is the team's experience with the game, what is the community's sentiment and the player data, all of them together. If you factor all of those in, you'll be able to figure out whether the long-term retention is going in the right direction. And uh, this is al almost always the hardest thing to do because you might add a system which you think is interesting now, but it might have a sort of domino effect into the future. So that's why you need to balance all of these three things out. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Abai. Uh, if folks do have any, any questions about you or, or DECA or anything like that, is there a good way to get in contact with you? Yep, um, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, you can just send me a message, yeah. Always to <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Thank you.